Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Highly Functional. This is Brianne Showman, and I am joined today by strength coach Ryan Naylor. Ryan and I had a really good conversation around why proper movement is so important when it comes to lifting mechanics, and also what proper movement actually means. Whether you are an athlete, a clinician, or a coach, I think you'll find this conversation highly valuable. So let's tune in. Ryan, thank you for joining me today. How are you? Very good. Thank you for having me. You are quite welcome. I'm excited to talk to you. Um, You have been a strength coach for a while. You are in the strongman world as well. Um, And because what you do, you definitely know good and proper lifting mechanics to not only minimize injury, but also generate more power. And that's what I ultimately want to kind of dive into today. But first of all, who are you? Um, I am Ryan Naylor. Um, I'm a strength coach operating out, operating out of the UK. Um, I delve in between strength uh, and general fitness education and also helping out general population and working with strength athletes. Um, Competed in strongman, I think, for four years. Before that, I was a national judoka and a semi-professional rugby player. Um, so, been in the gym since I was about fourteen, and now twenty-eight. So, I feel like I've been there my whole life, well, half of. Um, and I currently compete at national level open weight strongman, um, and I'm a, was a very good level one hundred and five kilo strongman, but I decided. It was better to eat food rather than stay at 105 kilos. And that's where we're at. Always a better plan, <laughs> eating food. <laughs> Quite a switch from rugby to doing more strength work. What was the change? What was the reasoning behind that change? Um, I was always in the weight room a lot, and rugby prevented me from being in the weight room as much as I wanted to. Um, I played rugby since I was probably 13 um, and it just come evident I was more interested in getting stronger rather than playing and I'd just kind of fallen into the lull of playing for a long time for the sake of it uh, because I was a half decent standard and then I realised that the injuries and whatnot were not worth it and I preferred training it was warm <laughs> um, <laughs> it was- however um, the injuries in strongman are much more severe than what you get in rugby and albeit less frequent, it probably wasn't the best choice for that reason. <laughs> <laughs> when talking about injuries in strongman, um, what sort of things have either you dealt with, what are some comp, yeah, what are some things that you have dealt with injury wise, um, And even like some of your athletes, what are some common things that kind of happen? Um, So I did a really bad weight cut once and passed out under a 110 kilo log, which in pounds is what, like 240 um, and nearly lost my foot. So it landed on my foot. Um, I tore my plantar fascia and couldn't walk for probably two or three months. Um, That's most severe, but it was my own fault. Um, you pick up lots of niggles like forearm injuries from lack of structural balance. So maybe wrist extensors not matching up uh, with your bicep strength, things like that. Um, so tendonitis in the elbow is 
massively common. Um, bad backs is massively common because people get into strongman maybe from bodybuilding. And typically they're very tight from building lots of tissue. Um, hamstrings, quads, again, very typical. Shoulder injuries are always common. <laughs> um, yeah, very typical. And, and you can name it that as a strongman, you probably have at least two of those injuries a year and you'll need to invest quite a lot of money on uh, dry needling, cupping, any sort of shockwave therapy and the list goes on. Absolutely. So was that injury what made you decide to go up in weight class? Um, it's not. It should have been. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I it took a little bit of sabbatical from strongman and then came back and kind of went in at intermediate open weights. So in the UK, it goes novice, intermediate, heavyweight. Um, so I pulled back from 105s, did intermediates, and then decided last year I'd go back into the 105s because I wanted to win a couple of national titles. Um, well, England and UK's. Um, however, due to the pandemic, neither of the comps went ahead. So I just made the decision that I would then go into open weight. And have since I now weigh, what, 100 and... 27 kilos so like nearly like 280 pounds in comparison to 105 kilos which was hard for me to stay at yeah do you feel like you're performing better now that you're at that higher weight yeah massively so i recently just deadlifted 350 kilos which is just below 800 pounds oh wait it might be 800 pounds i'm not sure um (laughs) around there my, my overhead press has gone up massively um it's just more of the aesthetic look you're obviously going to be a lot heavier so you have to kind of get used to the fact that you're not going to be beach ready ever again (laughs) (laughs) it's kind of hard to get used to but it is what it is very true but i mean you definitely regardless of what sport you're in it's so important just to fuel yourself for your training because if you don't i mean Worst case scenario, you pass out and hurt yourself. <laughs> yeah. I mean, being hydrated is massively part of performance. And you start to learn that when you do weight cuts <laughs> massively. Um, yeah, it's dangerous to do bad weight cuts. So I learned that early on. So obviously, not in, not all injuries are preventable. Things happen. We need to make sure we take care of ourselves properly um, with recovery methods. But... What sort of things are you doing with your athletes to to minimize that risk of injury um, and to also help them generate more power in their lifts? Because I I know some of that does go hand in hand. Certainly. So one of the things that um, I picked up from uh, my coach that I didn't really think about a long time ago, and it's kind of a bit of a the classic Charles Poliquin discussing structural balance, but I used to always go when I get new strongmen, we always used to do a two to one ratio of, of um, pull to push. So I'd make sure the classic one is one to one, but I just believe that most people that typically are in the gym would do so many push exercises that the two to one ratio of pull to push would be better. So that's one thing that I start to address is looking at that. The next thing I look at is their ratios. So for example, the front squat to the log press the front squat should be 65 percent. sorry front squat should be um 100 and the log press should be 65 percent of that so looking at sort of more olympic weightlifting style with the strongman um similar things there should be a good ratio between back and front squat the front squat shouldn't be better than the back squat um looking at ankle mobility is a huge one 
Um, lots of the guys chuck on lifting shoes straight away and don't even do any sort of dorsiflexion work. And then they end up completely flat-footed walking like Fred Flintstone, um, which is a big thing. So looking at that, if there's an imbalance between left to right, Another one is their external rotation. Lots of their external rotations are horrendous from years of doing bench press rather than overhead press. Um, looking, one that I personally had and I never realised was having a sit-down test and seeing if my spine still rotated, which it didn't. <laughs> so, like, I remember my girlfriend was taking a picture of me ice skating from behind and she shouted me to look back and I literally put my head over my shoulder and could barely see her. Uh, and it was something that I looked at and now look at a lot with Strongman to see if they still rotate because it's not like we put a lot of rotational power into programming. So adding that in, um, things like windmills to make sure that they can touch their toes with straight legs with weight above head, which is very rare. Um, so much goes into sort of making them better athletes and, and keeping them athletic as well as being large and strong. Uh, it becomes, it has to almost take over your life to be an elite strongman because it is that, that classic triangle of flexibility, strength, and obviously health. Um, it, we have to be good at all of them. If we're not flexible or mobile, um, we're not going to get into those positions and be as strong as we possibly can. Um, there's a famous powerlifter, Dan Green, that I used to follow from the US. Um, and he obviously talked about People discuss flexibility in terms of being able to get into position, but in strength sports, flexibility is being able to get into position and be strong in that position, which most people can't. <laughs> that, that's not really, that's where we break down. So sort of getting them into that position and then building the posterior chain to allow them to be strong there. Yeah, and I think that's, that's in my opinion, that's a huge missing element what you just stated because a lot of people, it's like, oh, I'm stiff. I need to do mobility work. So they do the mobility work, but then they never train their body actually to how to use that mobility, which create, which is essentially what creates a lot of injuries. Because um, like, I like to compare it to like gymnasts or Cirque du Soleil people. They're super, super flexible and bendy, but they're also super, super strong in those positions. And we really do need that balance to both. Yeah, it's the, I, it's the stability factor for sure. Um, everyone loves mobility, but rarely does anyone build strong stability. Uh, and you see, you see it quite frequently. I mean, the difference when I train men and women is, is hilarious because I always feel like men need a little bit more of female in them and females need a little bit more men in them. So like men want to go super heavy really quick. They don't like warming up. Um, they don't like technique. They're, they're happy to get rid of it typically. Women are over the top they want to be very careful they want the technique to be so perfect before they add 1.25 kilos to the bar um and they're very mobile but not very stable so they don't want to do the things that men want to do and men don't want to do the things women do and it's kind of fine i'm always like if you're a little bit more like each other we'd have a perfect athlete so it's often that's what i usually find myself pulling men back in regards to the weights their weight selection and then throwing women forward with their weight selection yeah I think it's really funny. I actually just had this conversation with a coach this morning at my gym. Cause we were talking about why are so many people getting shoulder injuries lately? And we're, I was kind of talking about a couple of things. One of those, the stability factor, but the other was the same thing about like the guys just want to go heavy. And it's like, probably not a way that they should be doing. 
I don't think I, I've been for certain I've been in that category um, where I want to go heavier all the time. But the reality is sometimes you have to earn that weight before you start putting it on. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, there is the stabilizer factor. I've seen guys throw weight overhead incredibly powerfully, but they're so unused to the dead spot that is like in between the drive from the, the neck to above, above head, that dead spot, they're not able to stabilize the weight and it, they lose control of it. And they've got too much power for, I think the famous saying is you can't shoot a, um, you can't shoot a cannon out of a canoe. Um, this is exactly that. And their shoulders are not stable enough for the power that they, they possess. So it's earning that right to put the weight up. But yeah, all guys want to go super heavy all the time. Sometimes it's about technical failure rather than actual failure. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's what a lot of people don't truly understand is I like to use the term regress to progress. Like you have to sometimes back down, work on that stability factor, work on that technique factor. And without even trying to get stronger, you naturally can put up more weight. So, I mean, I, one of the education companies that I work for, we predominantly all the, um, so they're the education company with inside a um, equipment company and we teach trainers in regards to how to use the equipment and a lot of the time we go through functional movements squat push pull um lunge rotation gait um forget the other one um and how to regress and progress those movements for clients and limb lengths and things like that rather than being like okay here's the deadlift keep progressing it adding a kilo each week uh you'll get stronger well yeah there's probably some sort of regression and progression to that to keep getting them stronger or looking at their imbalances to give them a regression that will increase that deadlift strength anyway but yeah massively i love i definitely agree with the regress to progress because most of the time it is an imbalance that we can manage or take out and get them stronger anyway yeah and I think that part, partially that plays into that too is like, especially with social media so prevalent these days, like it's cool to post those heavy lifts and the things that you're doing that way. It's not as fun to post all the like stability work or accessory work that, you know, the elite level athletes tend to do. And so I think there's this disconnect sometimes with the more recreational athlete because they don't see and understand that other stuff is important to do. I think, I think as well, like it, it's like you said, social media does show like the heavy one rep or the heavy three reps or the, the heavy set that is, is very complex, like a power clean or a full clean. You're looking at it and how, most people can't do a full clean. So they're going to go and try and do it. And they're going to be with sex. They can't go heavy. But likewise, most beginner programs are just linear progression. Most advanced programs follow a conjugate or concurrent method. And those concurrent methods pull athletes back massively using speed work or using complexes or movements that are a lot harder than a typical basic compound movement. And then you might do one or two movements and then the rest of your whole session is stabilizers or weaknesses. And most novice athletes don't have a clue on how what even are their weaknesses or even how to program them and maybe they can't afford a coach and finding uh, literature on stabilizing movements is very little because 
they're all wants to write about stabilizer movements. They want to know how to increase your bench press or how to increase your power clean. Um, so yeah, I'm not surprised they do struggle, but it, it's almost like trying to find the holy grail when you're trying to improve. You can't find the information you want and there's almost too much information. Yeah, there's, there's too much bad information. There's not enough good information. And even if someone does find the good information, like our bodies are smart to a detriment, like any poor movement patterns you've learned, they're going to continue doing those unless you really know you're doing them and start like know how to retrain them. They're hard to get rid of. I told a client today, um, we was discussing like she picked up the front squat very quickly. Um, and I was like, the reason you picked up the front squat so quickly and you prefer it to the back squat is because you back squatted for years with poor quality. So you find it hard to do because of, of the poor quality of the movement. I could teach you the new movement in an hour and you prefer it because you've got no, um, you've not got no previous experience doing it. So you've got no bad exposure to it. She's like, Oh, it makes sense. I was like, whereas to fix your back squat, it could take us 10 weeks. Whereas me teaching your front squat, you got it like straight away. So it's exactly that. Like reteaching technical proficiency is incredibly hard and it hurts your ego, which is even harder. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. What, so speaking of like retraining movement, obviously everyone's different, but, um, and accepts different cues, but what are kind of you looking at when you're looking at like someone's poor technique and how you can tweak that in order to help them generate more power and control? Um, there's lots of ways that I like to I'm not say cue, obviously with cues, like we talked about the hip drive earlier. Um, I try to get that into most people's movements as quickly as possible because most people neglect it mm-hmm. and they don't understand how to actually engage their triple extension or glutes or whatever you would call it. So that's a huge cue for me in pretty much every movement. However, <clears throat> things like elbows up, one basic cue per movement. I know a lot of people like to shout 10, like, chest up, chest up, hips now. Yeah, head up. And they get completely confused and they ask what you're talking about. We've just shouted 10 cues that I've never been explained about. So just focusing on one at a time and then changing that cue and adding it in. The things that I like to put in to improve bad positions are typically isometrics. So whether it be pulling against, um, for example, in a deadlift, whether it be pulling against a, uh, a drop hook or obviously in the squat rack, pulling against the safety or whether it be pausing in a position for a certain amount of time. So, for example, in a push jerk or a split jerk, getting that person to pause in a dip position and then exploding to improve that and re-keep programming the mind. Uh, And then the other one would be super slow eccentrics, which I use quite a lot with squats, um, deadlifts, anything where the movement is a multi-joint. So probably a little different to most coaches. Um, I know most coaches just keep queuing to death, whereas I probably prefer to change the exercise to improve. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I love the hold. Um, I do that a lot with athletes just to kind of, and even myself, just to really focus on um, one learning the movement, but also learning how to control that position. Cause those hold positions are so important to be able to stabilize. Um, and I always think eccentrics are so helpful just to gain that re- like gain more stability and control over your body. Um, in all movements, you can really do a lot of eccentric work. 
pretty yeah the intramuscular coordination is the difference between elite athletes and sort of novice intermediates that years of years drilling the same movement and it's become second nature and they can truly express power through it which novice athletes just can't so the introduction of the slow eccentric obviously helps that exposure just through sheer time um yeah that's for me is probably one of the things that adding in as a coach and an athlete has changed me is the the fact looking at eccentrics and isometrics as a younger athlete i knew that they worked but i didn't want to put the time into them because they weren't as full uh that's funny so true (laughs) now let's take a quick break to talk about equip foods equip foods is a supplement line but what i really love about them is their products are made with 100% real food products. There's no fillers, there's no chemicals, there's nothing artificial in it. So everything that you are putting into your body when you consume their products is good for you. And they don't just have the normal protein and pre-workout type supplements. They also have products for decreasing inflammation, for joint health, for circulation, for all sorts of things that just help you be an overall healthier person. So go check out everything Equip Foods has to offer at equip, E-Q-U-I-P, foods.com. And at checkout, if you use code F-I-X-15, that is F-I-X-1-5, you can save 15% on your order. You can also get a link to Equip Foods and all my other partners at getyourfixpt.com slash partners. And now let's get back to our conversation. Let's dive into the hip drive conversation a bit, just because like, regardless of pretty much any movement you're doing, like generating power from those hips is so important. Like whether you are, doing an upper body movement or something lower body, how we position those hips is really key to all of them. Massively. And I mean, in strongman, we have a little bit of a problem in terms of, well, even at the top level. So I could analyze five to 10 top strongman doing a log clean and press or log clean and and push press and whatever. And most of them wouldn't come onto onto their toes in the clean phase. Now, if I was to analyze 10 Olympic weightlifters and not, and one of them didn't come onto their toes, I would be completely shocked because they're bred from a young age uh, or from whatever they're training, young training age, let's say that they're bred from young age, that the triple extension, the triple extension, the triple extension, in strongman, we get guys that are typically very strong and they have this insane amount of muscle that they then just muscle through exercises. Uh, I've coached guys that have very, very good log clean and presses. And I look and just go, wow, if they just put their hips through and come onto their toes, we would have a guy that who's clean would go up by 20 to 30 kilos within a matter of four weeks, which is crazy. The same with the deadlift guys that don't push their hips through when it comes to their tibia and you're thinking okay if we did that we'll increase by 20 to 30 years within four weeks and it's just those small technical changes to involve the power of the hip drive that make the athlete so much better and it's almost like people don't understand that 
force equals mass times acceleration, the hip allows us to be much quicker, which allows the movement to be better. For example, OCR, CrossFit, Strongman, all of those things are about efficiency of movement and making it easier for ourselves. It's not about slowing the movement down, making it even harder and using more muscle groups. Yeah. And a lot of it too is like the way I like to explain it is like just the size of the muscle. Like if you're using your arms to muscle something up or your back to muscle something up, it's a lot of small muscles being used to move a lot of weight versus if you're using your glutes and hamstrings, like those are pretty big muscle groups that you can generate a lot of power (laughs) through. In comparison to the bicep, which is a very small muscle group and can take about eight to 16 sets a week of exercise in comparison to glutes that walk all day. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Transitioning a little bit to shoulder health. Um, what sort of things are you doing with your athletes for building up more of that stability and control through their shoulders? Um, typically, so typically after a press day, um, all my athletes will perform two stabilizers. Now it might be windmills. It might be external rotation. It might be trap free raises. Um, it might be power raises. It might be Turkish get-ups. Um, it might be marches with weight overhead dependent on the individual. And I'll rotate those stabilizers every two weeks, maybe four weeks, dependent on the individual. If they're less trained, so if they're more of a novice, um, I'll keep the stabilizers the same for a long period of time until they perfect them. Whereas if they're a more advanced athlete and they've done these exercises until I've until they literally hate them, um, I rotate them every two weeks to get more stimulus. Um but yet they do them at least twice a week for shoulder stabilizers. Um, they probably never done these exercises before working with me and they absolutely hate them by the time <laughs> they've been working with six <laughs> But you see such a difference in, in terms of overhead strength performance. Um, you can see their lower traps actually working, their rhomboids working as they press and it massively increases lockout strength. And I mean, since I've incorporated those stabilizing movements twice a week i touch wood i haven't had a shoulder injury in a year and a half they're just a lot more stable less problems um no real ac problems the actual only time most of my athletes get any shoulder issues is when we do ridiculously heavy farmers walk because obviously the weight is pulling off their shoulder and its integrity is very stressed (laughs) (laughs) absolutely yeah the reps reps and tempos vary again on those movements as well yeah that makes sense and i think it's important to stress like when you do have that stability your strength naturally increases um i just had this conversation with a client of mine new client of mine last week he's like we're just doing all shoulder stability stuff he's like is this going to make me stronger i was like actually yes it will (laughs) because your body knows how to control it now you can actually express that strength in a straight line rather than in a very, very wobbly line. Um, things like the bamboo bar, for example, are great for that. And it, it, you get so many people that have developed humongous deltoids on the like front deltoids uh, and big pecs, and they have very little um, stabilizing muscles. And when you do some sort of test, um, any sort of assessment, they can barely get the hand behind the back and, and they can't get the arm above the head. And you're thinking, Jesus Christ, how are we going to, 
press anything overhead with your arm that can't even get over your head. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'm sure in your in your line of work you find all the time. I find that frequently, yes. And it does just make you cringe. It's like you can't even get your arm fully overhead. So how are like what is your body doing when you actually do lift a barbell up to like actually hold that there? Like it's the classic when you see someone that's got a tight thoracic spine and they're pressing in a diagonal line in front of their face rather than like a standing incline press rather than above their head. And you're like, eh, maybe we can't do standing overhead press for a long time. <laughs> uh, that's the common one. And I think as a beginner strength coach, I, I remember seeing it and being like, oh, just you know, press it straight up and thinking many years ago, I'm trying to work that one out. But yeah, there's lots and lots and lots of individuals like that. Yeah. And you um, just mentioned it here with the thoracic mobility and, you mentioned earlier too, as far as, as far as working that spinal rotation, I think that's in my opinion, an element that's really missed. Cause if people are working shoulder stability, it's like, there's definitely people I'll see at the gym loosen or like doing shoulder stability work, but then I never see them actually doing things to loosen up their spine because there's, I think there's this disconnect, like even though the shoulder is right next to the rib cage, which is connected to your spine we don't understand that we need good motion through that spine in order to actually have good quality of motion. No, there's a podcast by Dr. Jordan Shallow, and I believe she's a doctor now, Dr. Ste- Dr. Stephanie Stephan Cohen. And they talk about, well, Jordan talks about the rib cage connecting to the spine uh, and obviously the shoulders and, and why people have poor shoulder, like thoracic mobility because the rib cage is tight. I think it's about two hours long discussing that. And it is, <laughs> It's, it, I know most people are not going to listen to it because it's overkill, but it is one of the best podcasts in regards to why you are tight in the thoracic or why your shoulders are tight um, and why it's most likely your ribcage is tight. And the people that are rounded over thinking that their shoulders are tight when typically it's not. I, I, I'm the, me personally, I'm the opposite. My thoracic spine is really flexible, um, but my rotator's got really tight from benching too much and my forearms are incredibly tight so much so that i the last injury i had was tendon damage in my hand from the forearm being too tight and in the rack position me putting a lot of stress on my wrist and and tendons in my hand um but most people it's the fact that they're around over looking at their phone all day or their laptop and they do zero sort of flexibility work for their upper back um they're not going to roll over a like a yoga wheel or a barbell because it's painful. No one wants to do that. They're not going to do pullovers with a kettlebell because it's not flashy. And again, it's painful. Like any thoracic mobility is painful, whereas shoulder mobility is fairly simple. You just do some band dislocations or anything like that, external internal rotation. As soon as you ram someone's back over a barbell or their elbows above their head, they're like, I don't want to do this. It hurts. Of course it hurts. <laughs> <laughs> There's years of tissue buildup. <laughs> So true. I want to kind of connect the dots between the shoulder and the hips a little bit, because there is so much interplay, but specifically for pulling, um, pulling off the ground. Um, Like I see so many just lazy shoulders as they're going into a deadlift or a clean, um, not really understanding, like they have to activate those shoulders to keep that good spine position and really activate those hips. So, um, I would love for you to kind of dive into that conversation a little bit. 
this is an interesting one in strongman because a lot of people, if they follow me, they'll notice that I often deadlift for a round back when I wear a deadlift suit. Um, however, I don't teach that. So if I was working with an athlete, I'm not going to be like, right, round your back. Um, yeah, that's great form. Uh, and I'll get people, oh, your back's really round when you deadlift. And I was like, mm, okay, so if I attach 350 kilos to your hands, gravity is going to dictate that you, your back is going to pull. So advanced deadlifters are always going to have somewhat of a rounded shoulder. And then when we start putting deadlift suits on, obviously it rounds the back even more. And four, you have to work so hard to keep mid-back integrity. It, your mid-back hurts for weeks after using one. Um, however, when I work with any normal individual, trying to get that great position is not as easy as it seems, pulling the shoulders back, etc. It could be ankle mobility, which is a massive factor because they can't get to the bar in the first place. So loosening the anterior tib and stretching the calves, strengthening the anterior tib as well. Um, their hip mobility, because they're not used to sitting in that position, is another thing. Um, and then generally sitting back, they struggle with hugely. Um, and again, scapular control. So teaching that and teaching the hip hinges at primary level to keep their shoulders back. Um, yeah. And also when their shoulders are rounded forward like that in the deadlift, the bar often shoots very quickly off the floor, but then they get to just above the knee and they're in that rounded kyphotic position and they can't get the hips through. So it stops them and they think they've got a weak lockout. When in, in reality, as you said, it's the setup where their shoulders are back. In strongman at the elite level, a lot of us manipulate to have a rounded back so the bar does shoot off the floor. And then because we're heavy, we work so much on our back, the rest is an easy pull. And also we're in lifting straps. So it's very, I find it very difficult to explain to some clients when they've seen me deadlift with a round back and me be like, you can't have a round back. You have to have a perfectly straight spine and your head has to be... In, in line with that they're like yeah but yours isn't i'm like oh do as i say not as i do <laughs> <laughs> like once you put that much weight on the bar then you can follow my rule yeah the, the mechanics change massively once it gets to that sort of weight there's no real every i've, I've seen guys that are pulling much more than me with horrendous form but they're deadlifting 400 kilos so something's obviously going right and people say things like, oh, he's going to snap his back or he's going to like do this. I'm thinking the, the size of the guy's posterior chain is holding himself together. Um, and it comes into a, a very new world, um, which not many people have been to or can understand. And I think the important thing to point out with that is no movement is necessarily bad. It's a matter of what your body's able to control. Like the person who can only put like two plates on a barbell and for a deadlift, yeah, they probably can't do a rounded back for anything with that they're lifting from the ground. But when you train your body to lift 350, 400 kilos, like you're, you've trained your back to have that stability, have that control throughout that motion. And so it is a lot different um, because you, you've prepped your body for that massively um it, i mean transitioning from a 300 to a 350 deadlift i used to always think that i had to train my like i had to row all the time do lots of back work reality was i've barely done any 
rowing or back work to transition from a 300 to a 350 kilo deadlift, it's predominantly been hamstring to make sure my hips are firing through correctly, um, which I find baffling because I was jamming away at trying to get a 300 kilo deadlift doing so much lat work for, for so long, but it wasn't. It was predominantly my hips and my posterior chain strength in, in my hamstrings. So again, it's about finding the weakness that is within the individual to make them stronger overall. Yeah. And I think that that's a great thing to point out, um, especially with people who are trying to figure it out on their own by like just doing what someone else is doing is everyone does have a weakness in a different area. And unless you address that weakness, like you aren't going to have the success. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and it's, it's sometimes it's not like, I people are, oh you don't co- coach yourself I'm like no I don't coach myself I'm like oh why you're more than knowledgeable enough to coach yourself and I'm like mm. there's two reasons personally I don't know the route to my next weight because I've never been there I like to find out um, I can hypothesize and the second reason is I am surrounded by people that are always oh that was amazing that was amazing and I have no one there that's going to go hmm yeah, that was good, but it wasn't as good as it could be, or that was terrible, or you're not doing this, or this is what you really need to do. And I know you don't enjoy it, but this is what's going to make you better. Um, and it found it took me a long time to find a coach that would do that and was that involved and would help. Um, and when you're a coach that's very involved with your athletes and you, you're always doing that and you're trying to find it, it's hard. And the, the other thing as well is when you work with an athlete and you are that person that's always negative almost they're like oh jesus christ like you just ride my ass all the time and you don't like you're so horrible or and i'm like no i'm doing it for the doing it for the good i'm just there's always there's no real good in me going oh well well done that was amazing when we've got so much more we could be working on yes it was amazing but we need to prove this this and this to get to realistically what you want say if your goal is uh the 250 kilo back squat and we're at 200 kilos these are the next points we need to work on to get you to that 250 kilo dead um, squat rather. And that to me is, is why you need a coach. Absolutely. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> um, Cause yeah, it's so true. Like coaches need coaches. We can't figure everything out on our own bodies. That's why we get people to do it for us. <laughs> it's very hard to be impartial on yourself as well. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, I want to cover one other thing because you have mentioned it several times and I think it's something that's overlooked by a lot of people. And that is how much ankle mobility is required for a lot of these movements. Like so many times if people are struggling with a squat, it's like they address their hips and they figure out like what, what they need to do with their hips. Um, and even coaches, I see them like not even looking at what's going on with the ankle. And it's such an important factor that plays into body position, especially like bottom of the squat. Yeah. And it seems like most people get ankle mobility issues. Like say there's a pre-existing injury, say like everyone's rolled their ankle and their ankle doesn't flex in the right way in dorsiflexion which it always is um for say three four weeks and the ankle is so stubborn as a joint it does not like to be moved um it likes to be stable understandably that's its main role um so when it's been locked up for say four weeks or they've torn their achilles or any of these things like really common injuries for just general population 
and they've got horrendous dorsiflexion and they're wondering why they've got butt wink or they're wondering why they can't stay in a certain position or they're wondering why they can't hit depth. This is the reason why. I mean, we look at Olympic lifters, the incredible amount of dorsiflexion they need to hit an overhead squat or hit a full depth clean um, or even the incredible amount of dorsiflexion they need to get um, in the dip and the drive for, for an overhead press or a jerk or a split jerk or whatever it be, it is probably the number one in terms of mobility for me. And if there is an invariable between um, invariable difference between left to right, we're looking at a huge injury risk because they can land in certain positions, they can swing to the left, um, which will start showing in knees and hips. Knees, obviously, everyone thinks they've hurt their knee, but it isn't. It's probably because of that imbalance. Um, and we're not addressing it enough. And the reason people are not addressing it as well is because they might know they've got ankle and, uh, ankle mobility issues, then they just chuck a lifting shoe on, which fixes it momentarily, but it makes it worse in the long term. Rather than putting a lifting shoe on and then working at the ankle mobility in the meanwhile. And the other reason is if we wanted to increase someone's thoracic mobility, we can do it with TNS in two, three minutes. If we wanted to increase the hamstring mobility, fairly simple because there's not much joint involved, it's majority muscle. Whereas the joint of the ankle takes mobility two to three times a day for two to three weeks in horrible weighted stretch positions, such as like a weighted calf raise with a, a long isometric stretch at the bottom. No one wants to do that. As we said earlier, if it's painful, unless you really want better ankle mobility, which not many people value, they're not, unless it was me or you, we sit there and talk about how much we value ankle mobility. Most of <laughs> you are like, I don't value ankle mobility. Like, I don't get out of bed in the morning and go, oh my God, my goal, just, I want it more than I can breathe to have amazing ankle mobility. But they want the amazing lifts or the amazing performance, but not realizing that the ankle mobility could be the limiting factor. I mean, for me, it was massively on my deadlift. Getting into a tight, low bottom position was because my ankles were like, calcified like two bricks of bone um and it took a lot of time working on it um mine my right ankle when i dropped the log on my foot got incredibly stiff because it just didn't move for so long uh, and even like big toe mobility which is another one like big toe mobility like what's big toe mobility like when your big toe doesn't move like the other one which is again that foot it it makes you think often why people don't wear barefoot shoes or things like that to, to improve it. And they don't even look at it. It's not really on their list of performance increases, but it definitely has a massive place. Yeah. You know, it's, I train, I don't know if you've seen much of my social media. I train a lot barefoot as much as I can. And when I am in sure. shoes, I'm typically in minimalist shoes. And um, I had someone comment one time about like, basically I wish I could do that. And I was like, well, why can't you? It was like, I don't generate, like, basically I don't have as much strength and power when I'm barefoot. And it all comes down to like, you probably don't have the mobility. You probably, same thing, those t the toe strength, the foot strength. Like ultimately we should have more power when we're barefoot because we're really pressing into the ground and getting that feedback. Exactly. You're getting the feedback and on top of it, you should be more stable because you haven't got any foam underneath you. Well, you uh, <laughs> And it's it's the same ego thing we talked about earlier is most people don't want to regress things because it's their ego. They don't want to take off their footwear when they're weaker without it. 
Yeah. Um, I, I was first exposed to, to barefoot shoes four years ago. Some guys in an education team were, worked with all wore them. And it seemed at the time, I was like, everyone that wears them is like really narky about them. Like, you must wear barefoot shoes. Duh, 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 duh. And then I started to think more and more about it. And when I was wearing a Metcon for like moving events, how thick the rubber is and how much I couldn't feel the floor. Or even when I drive, I can't feel the pedal of my car. Um, and then obviously wearing a lifting shoe, there's obviously a massive heel in it. Uh, and I transitioned to a, a somewhat like first transition of a barefoot shoe and found a massive difference. And also your toes been allowed to splay, um, having room and actually having the whole surface area of your foot on the floor made a huge difference. And now I put on normal shoes and I'm like, oh my God, this is disgusting. Like my toes have cramped up or, and the performance of my feet and, and my calf strength and things like that and my anterior tib have come on massively. Um, it is a shock as to why people wouldn't want to connect with the floor more when in performance because we can create more power. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. I love this conversation that we had. Um, Ryan, if someone wants to follow you, reach out to you, has questions for you, where can they find you at? Um, they can find me at my Instagram handle, which is what I use mainly, which is just at train maverick. Um, likewise, if they want to look at my new gym that I'm opening, it's at Maverick Strength Gym. Um, feel free to reach out and message me if they want to chat or anything like that. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. This was fun. Perfect. Thank you for having me. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation today. And before we close out, I want to share with you a program I have called Resilient Shoulders. As OCR athletes, shoulder issues are very common. And if you are like most athletes, you use the lacrosse ball, you stretch, you do all of these things to try to improve the mobility of the shoulders. And yet you continue to have pain. Many times it's because the right things are not being done to really solve those problems, those underlying issues. And that's why I created Resilient Shoulders. Resilient Shoulders is an online platform that gives you the necessary things to do to resolve your shoulder issues, as well as minimize the risk of more issues happening in the future. So head over to getyourfixpt.com courses to check out the Resilient Shoulder course, as well as my other online programs. And once again, thank you so much for listening today. I really hope you enjoyed it. And now let's go out and be highly functional. <laughs>